Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and I'm reading from ESV. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help ease of urgent need. To help cases of urgent need, I apologize. And not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Grace, greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is God's word and thanks be to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for another opportunity to gather. We thank you for another occasion to sit with Bible open in laps, reading your precious truth. Lord, we ask now that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word. Lord, that you, your spirit would be our teacher as we walk through these few verses today and we see how Paul instructs his son in the faith and we see how through time that applies to our lives and our churches even today. Lord, your spirit has to be our teacher for that to happen and we ask that now. Lord, Protect my mouth from error as we go through this passage, and we will thank you for all you will do through your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, unsurprising to most of you probably, we're in Titus, right? We are carrying on the uh, verse-by-verse walk through this small letter divided in our English Bible into three chapters, but a small letter written by an elder apostle, uh, likely about the same time that he wrote First Timothy. So if you read First Timothy and you read Titus, we'll refer back there a couple of times today, but there are a lot of things. There are a lot of echoes, right? So it's, it's very, very possible that this is, this is occurring and being written at the same time First Timothy is being written because Paul is warning both pastors of very similar things to avoid and, and very similar things on how to teach. So Paul addresses this letter to Titus, his true child in common faith is how he addresses him in in chapter 1. He's a young pastor. I'm sure you are aware. I'm sure Isaac has reminded you many times, a young pastor who Paul left in Crete to set up elders, to appoint elders, to make sure things are running as they ought to run as the gospel continues to spread out of Jerusalem and Israel to Asia and points west. Paul recognizes the need to delegate to godly men to set these churches up, to lead these churches, to teach these churches, to ensure things are taught well and and error is avoided. 
he begins this book with the qualification of those whom Titus is to identify and appoint as elders. This book, along with First and Second Timothy, you may have heard them referred to as the pastoral epistles, and that is very fitting. He, he is talking to pastors. He is talking about setting up churches. He is talking on not only what to teach, but how to teach, when to teach, who to teach, who not to teach, who to deal with, who not to deal with. All of those things at a very practical level, Paul is providing that direction here to Titus. In our passage today, we're going to be focusing on verses 8 through 11. And we'll see some things there that Paul warns against. But he begins with some positive things. Um, You'll see as we go through our verses, beginning in 8, we we'll see that this, we read the whole chapter because what we're going to start with is tethered to the rest of it. This chapter is kind of glued together. It's all connected together and it all fits together and we can't parachute in on verses 8 to 11 without seeing what Paul's talking to Titus about previously. The same will be true for the last um, sermon in the series where the chapter from verse 12 to 15 is profitable. For people, So Paul starts out, this saying is trustworthy. Again, if you read First and Second Timothy, you will see that phrase pop up a few times. Now, Preston last week, as he walked through the first part of the, the main pe- part of what I'm going to point back to last week, he walked you through the gospel. He walked you through the title of the message was, He Saved Us. We read that again this morning. And the point of it is, and we're going to refer to this over and over and over again, so get ready for some repetition. The point of the message today, the point of the message last week is it's all about the gospel. The finished work of the cross is the point. That's what Paul is saying. Now, Preston mentioned last week at the end of the sermon, he he mentioned this, this phrase, this saying is trustworthy, and mentioned that it's possible that this may have been looking back towards a confession or a creed or maybe even a hymn or some kind of liturgical statement that the early church recognized. And and from what I can tell in study, it's referring back to verses four through seven. But But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by righteousness. Remember that phrase, because we're going to talk a lot about works this morning, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. The renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior. So that by being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It it seems as though the original reader, which would have been Titus and possibly his church, as he read it to him. It seems that they would have, have been familiar with this. That this would have been a statement that they would have known. It's kind of like... You may have heard a pastor quote a hymn in a sermon. Very similar. It seems that that that's what Paul's doing. And so he tethers what he's getting ready to teach us and tell us, or Titus, he tethers that back to the gospel. He tethers that back to verses 4 to 7 where Paul clearly walks through what Christ has done, how the Holy Spirit's been poured out, how we are offered forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. So he's pointing back to that, and he goes on after he tells Titus that this saying is trustworthy. He then says, and I want you to insist on these things. This is not negotiable. These items are not things that we can pick up and put down as the, the mood hits us or as the culture allows. Paul is instructing Timothy here to be confident, to be very specific. You preach the gospel, Timothy. I'm going to say Timothy all day. I can already tell. I can already tell. You preach the gospel, Titus. Insist on these things. Do not sway. Do not bend. Do not break. Do not move off of them. He is explaining to Titus the gospel cannot be compromised, and he wants Titus to be quite clear of that, so much so that he says, insist on these things so that So here we go. Insist on these things so that there's something logical understanding before the good works that he talks about. 
so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves. Can't get it out of order. You can do good things and not be a Christian. But then you go, that, that refers back to verse 5. You're not saved because of works done by righteousness, but according to his own mercy. It does not gain us anything before or after salvation. That's the thing that I think those of us who have been believers for some time sometimes tend to get confused. We look at the gospel and we read through that and we will wholeheartedly agree that is by grace through faith, absolutely nothing I can do can improve my stand in front of God. We will agree with that. But then we fall into this temptation of, of looking at the gospel as some sort of evangelical tool where we used it to get saved, right? We heard the message. We were convicted, confessed our sin, repented of our sin, believed on Christ, confessed him, and gain salvation. And then we think, well, the gospel, I'm done with that. I'll put that on the shelf. And then if I need to witness to somebody, well, I'll pull it back off, right? I'll pull it back off the shelf and I'll, I'll use it, quote, so that somebody else can get saved. And then I'll put it back on the shelf until I have to witness to somebody again. That's not what Paul is teaching it's not what he's explaining to Titus, and that's certainly not what he would have us understand today. So Paul, again, go, going back to the beginning of the verse, Paul insists on these things, that Christ lived a perfect life in complete obedience to God's holy law. He willingly gave that life, laid it down in front of an unjust trial and evil men who nailed him to a cross as our substitution so that God's perfect judgment and his wrath, wrath would be completely satisfied. That's what he has done. He was buried and on the third day was raised because death had no claim on someone who had not sinned. So he was resurrected, able now to offer forgiveness of sins, and to reconcile us with God so that when he sees us, he doesn't see the sinful mark. He sees the righteousness of Christ. That's the point. And it's not something that we put on when we get saved and then put the gospel away. The same gospel that saves us, sustains us. David was talking about that right before we sang that last song. The same gospel that saves us, sustains us. I think it was Martin Luther who said, I preach the gospel to myself every day because every day I forget the gospel. I have got to be reminded of Christ's love. I have got to be reminded that my hope and my assurance, my faith, my walk, every bit of it is because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. We fall into the temptation if, if we have been believers for some time and somebody would ask us, well, how's your relationship with God? Or, or how do you know that the Lord is pleased with you? And we immediately think, well, I get up at 5 a.m. every morning. I read my Bible. I pray through our church directory or through our weekly prayer list. I have worked in Awana for 25 years. I teach Sunday school. I take up the offering. I greet folks as they come in. All of those things are good things. Don't allow your assurance to rest in the things you do. We're going to talk about good works. We're made for good works. But we've got to keep right. We've got to understand what Paul is telling Titus. We've got to see what Paul is insisting here, that the gospel, that Christ is the basis for our assurance. I don't care how long we've taught Sunday school. Before or after salvation, that gains us no more standing or favor from the Lord than anything else. He loves us because he is gracious and merciful. He sent his son so that we might have life with him. So God's love for us and as his children is not informed by the quality or quantity of our quiet time or any of the other things that we do. It's through his grace 
and mercy alone. But then look and see what he says. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed. So he's talking about believers. He's talking about Christians. He's got the order correct. Not righteous works because we're trying to gain favor or gain salvation. Righteous works because we recognize God's grace and mercy and what Christ has done. And out of a heart of obedience, we want to do those things. So that's what he says. I insist on these things so that you have be- you, those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good work. That is a very interesting phrase. May be careful to devote themselves. Some of the commentaries that I was reading in, in studying this this week, one of them in particular, talked about this was a phrase that was used in the contemporary time when Paul was writing this, and it referred to a shopkeeper who would be standing out in front of his shop selling whatever it was, but he was careful to devote himself to whatever he was selling and, and would sell those things and would invite people walking by to, hey, come in, come in my shop and buy whatever it is that, that I'm selling. So if you think about it in that term, in those terms, you, you can almost translate this as make it your business to do good works. Be careful to devote yourself why? Because we understand grace and good works are the proper response. If you have uh, are able, I would invite you to flip back over with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I want to read a few verses, two of which are going to be very familiar, one of which may not be as familiar, but hopefully, um, hopefully you'll see how this fits. So Ephesians 2, we're going to start in verse 8. You may be able to say it without looking. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Usually we stop right there. But look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship. That, that word in Greek is the word we get poem from. So we are his poem. We are his workmanship, his work of art, his crafted thing. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. We were made for this. We were built for this. Our obedient response to the gospel is born out in good works that we do. And look at the last part of the verse. Not only created in Christ Jesus for good works, but then he talks about the good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're created for this. The works God created for us to do, it just fits. That's what Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. That's what Paul wants us to understand here as we read Titus chapter 3. But, but it's, it's that phrase, be careful to devote yourself, to, to make it your business, to spend your time It's something that takes effort. It's something that takes work. It's something that takes repetition. It's something that we do over and over and over again. As from the moment of our salvation to the moment of our last breath on earth, as we are walking, as we are being sanctified, those good works are what we're to be busying ourselves with. Now, thinking through illustrations, and and I don't know if this one will land or not, but we'll see. So Noah and I for reasons known only to the Lord, have decided we wanted to take up golf, right? I hear laughing, okay, right? So, so we've got some family members who play golf. They have been asking us, I don't know how long, come with us, come with us, come with us. Well, Noah and I are both left-handed, which if you are not left-handed, you think we've got like two heads or something because we show up and nobody has anything we can use. We're standing on the wrong side of everything. All, all, everything's backwards, right? So we, we've, got some, we've got some obstacles in our way to begin with. So play it again sports is, is our friend where we find cheap things that other people have basically thrown away, and, and at least it allows us to get out there. So Noah and I have decided to do this. We are terrible. I'll speak for me. I am terrible. Noah's less terrible, Right? <laughs> He's young. He's got a little more flexibility. Um, his, his arms and hips and everything moves just better, and things go straighter than, than they do with me. But so, so because we're bad, it takes us a long time, 
right? We played the other week at a course, and it was fairly nice, and the golf cart had a, looked like a GPS in it, and it would tell you how far you were from the hole, like it matters, like I can change anything about how I'm going to approach any of this. I'm going to hit it as far and hard as I can and hope for the best and probably be looking for the ball in the woods. But it, it has that, and there's this thing on the bottom that tells you how you're playing, if you're familiar with golf, with the pace of play. I hear more laughing, right? So by the time we got through the first nine, we were 17 minutes behind the pace of play. By the time we got finished, we were 32 minutes behind the pace of play. Fortunately, it wasn't a crowded day, but we let group after group after group after group play through. And one thing is evident when they would pull up and we'd say, look, y'all go ahead. We're going to be here a while. Please play through. You can tell. Now, some people are terrible like me, but they don't understand that. Some are very good, right? So you see people get up and hit the ball, and you think, one, how did he do that? That's straight as an arrow, 300 yards, and it's effortless. That's because they have spent time. There's no substitute for time and practice. Now, there's that one in a million, I guess, freak athlete who just has natural ability and mechanics are just there from birth, but for people like myself... That's not the case. So when we see these people who are able to do that, they have been careful to devote themselves. They have made it their business to get better at golf or baseball or tennis or basketball or whatever. Whatever it is that they're working towards, they have made that their business. And it's reflected in their ability. So unsurprisingly, as we read this, the good works that flow out of a new heart and a new life, Paul tells Titus, these things are excellent and profitable for people. Remember what we just read in Ephesians. We're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But we're created for good works that God set forth beforehand. So our good deeds that we display in our Christian life commend the gospel that we preach, right? They point to that. Our purpose as we come across people we work with and our neighbors and people that we go to church with, our our purpose and our goal is for them to hear the gospel and to respond obediently in faith and salvation. But we're called to love them and serve them either way. We love them and don't want them to suffer. So the good works that we do volunteering in Awana so that kids can hear the gospel. I said that before and and not putting assurance in that, but that's a worthy task. That's a good work where for an hour or more a week, you sit with a group of little kids around your table, read God's word to them and tell them, Jesus loves you and has done everything needed for you to be with him forever. What a sweet thing. But, but even beyond that, we don't want our neighbor to be hungry, not because they're a Christian necessarily, but because we love people because God's told us to love people and he loves them. We care about the orphan. We care about those in foster care. We do all these things, and you've seen through history how churches have been on the forefront of these Mercy ministries in adoption. Why? Because we get it. We understand the gospel. We understand what God has done and what he's called us to. We love people as he loves people. Good works are our business. They're the task we are to undertake. And Paul tells Titus, these things are excellent and profitable for people. Then we're going to pivot. Verse 9, but, sharp contrast here, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So, so Paul is, is pivoting now. He's talked about this saying is trustworthy, insist on these things so that those who believe would carry out good works, excellent and profitable. Now he's switching He's talking here about 
ideas and thoughts and, and things that are going on. But sharp contrast between sound theology that Paul described and now the false teaching that he's getting ready to address. Paul lists four things here that Titus and the church in Crete and by extension church here this morning should be aware of. Foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. So we'll look through all of these. What's Paul saying here? Is he saying that all controversy is bad? Is he saying to ignore genealogies if you come across them in Scripture? Of course not. So what is he telling us? Well, for the controversy piece, there's an adjective in front of that. If you're reading ESV, that adjective is foolish. Avoid foolish controversy. Now, you've been in Titus for several weeks. You, don't, you may not have to flip in your Bible. I'm back one page in Titus chapter 1, verse 13. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. He's talking about false teachers. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. That sounds like controversy. I don't think Paul would file that under foolish controversy, though. Look around here this morning. We find ourselves in a Protestant church. The word protest is right there in front of it, right? That's what we are. Was that a foolish controversy when the reformers read their Bible and understood, no, the teaching of the church of Rome is not what this says. This is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And the Holy Spirit stirred up something in their heart and in their brain and in their soul and in their guts to stand up against that and to say, no, it's not buying indulgences. It's not paying money so that you find favor with the Lord. That's not what this says. Many of them lost their freedom for it. Many of them lost their life for it. We are sitting in a church this morning because there are people who came before us who had the brains and the guts to stand up and say, God's word says that's wrong. So he's not saying avoid all controversy. Some controversy is necessary. He has told Titus that even in in just the few chapters before that. Next thing we see, genealogies. So if you begin your new year with, I'm going to read through the Bible this year, right? You start in Genesis. It will not take you long to start getting to genealogies. Now, I will admit at times they are tedious to read. There are names that half of them I cannot pronounce. People I don't know. There's no reference to them other than this genealogy, right? But so-and-so begat so-and-so and on and on and on and on and on and on. And so we read through that. Is Paul saying, just, just skip it, right? You get to that part in Genesis, jump to the next chapter, stuff gets better. Is that what Paul's saying? No, that's not, that's not what Paul's saying. He's, he's not telling us that genealogies are useless or to be avoided. So w- what, what was happening contemporary to Paul, and again, this is 1 Timothy um, 1 and 3 and 4. You don't have to turn there, but this is, this is what he's telling at the very beginning of, the, of his first letter to Timothy. He, he's warning Timothy about false teachers. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promotes speculation rather than stewardship from God that is faith. So how do you steward a genealogy? Well, we, under, we have to understand what it is. We don't know the people, right? The, the, the Holy Spirit, in many cases, has only revealed to us their name and the name of their son and the name of their son and on and on and on and on. We see such and such begat sons and daughters, and that's all we know about them. So how do we steward that well? Well, we step back and we recognize, why did God, through the Holy Spirit, include that? Because we see God working his plan of redemption through the arc of history, through real people who lived real lives, who had real children, who died real deaths. 
We see that over and over and over again as we read through the Old Testament. Why is it in there? Well, because in Genesis 3, God promised the seed of the woman will come and will crush the head of the serpent. The very beginning, the very first glimpse of the gospel, we get it right after Adam and Eve's sin. God's not caught by surprise. He has a plan. He has a purpose. Then you keep reading and you find that God promised Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to give you a land. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Another prophecy of Christ. Then you get further along, the greatest king of Israel, David. David, I promise you that your descendant will sit on my throne forever and ever. So we see this. We see through, through the Old Testament, we're walking through and we see these real people living real lives, having real children that God's using. God's working. Paul tells us in Galatians that when the fullness of time came, Christ came. All of history is arranged around this event and God's pointing back. I've been working the whole time. We get to Matthew chapter one, New Testament, and we read of a very specific genealogy with names that some of which we do know from our Old Testament. It's the genealogy of Christ. And soon after that, we are introduced in Matthew and the other gospels to the last of the Old Testament prophets, crazy looking guy with a camel hair, camel hair outfit, a leather belt, eating bugs and honey. He shows up and they ask him, are you Elijah? Nope. Are you the light? I'm not the light, but I've come to tell you about the light. I've come to prepare a way for the one who has been promised since Genesis chapter 3. I've come to tell you about the one who you just read his whole genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. He wouldn't have said it like that, but that's the point. And when Christ shows up and John sees him, how does he introduce him in, in, in the gospel of John? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how we steward a genealogy. We understand that it's God through his spirit and through his word teaching us how he's been working. Now, in this day, Paul warned Timothy, Paul, Paul warns Titus about being careful here. There were folks who were adding to the story. So apparently you read through Genesis and you get to a name you don't know. They would just make up names and stories and backstories like a superhero comic. I don't know what it was, but they, they would just make up these stories and then bind the consciences of people who were listening to them and say, you've got to believe this that I made up out of my head. And it sounds crazy, but you got to believe it. So that's what Paul's warning here. Be careful. Don't ignore genealogies. Understand them, steward them well. Then the next thing, we got to hurry. The next thing, dissensions. This destroys unity. Paul talks several places about the unity in the church. And this is the opposite of that. This is, is something that destroys unity. And this idea here is that there are continual disagreements, not because they're um, sound and good debates, but continual disagreements with the purpose of disagreeing. Have you ever met anybody like that who just are not happy unless something is stirred up all the time, right? I see a lot of heads nodding. If you're going, I've never met anybody like that. It may be you, right? <laughs> you may be that person. So be careful, right? If you, if you, if, if, but you can think back. There is somebody that would argue with you over the color of the sky, the color of the grass, just for the sake of arguing, not because we're trying to get to a, some consensus or understanding, but just because they're not happy unless everybody else is mad. But that undermines church unity, which is terribly important. And then the last thing of the four, and quarrels about the law. This is likely the law of Moses. Again, if you flip back one page or just look across your page, of verse uh, 10 of chapter 1, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. This may be, again, a, a reference to those who we would know as Judaizers. Paul talks about them at length in Galatians and, and speaks of those who 
say they believe Christ, but also say you've also got to keep all the feasts. You still got to make all the sacrifices, all the rituals of the law. You still got to do all that. Yeah, we believe Christ, but we're just adding him in. Paul's saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're not, we're not doing this endless quarreling about the law. Um, we're not insisting both are needed for salvation. There is a new covenant through the blood of Christ, through his finished work on the cross. So you hear these things and you think, well, I've not heard anybody try to make me believe a genealogy that, you know, I didn't believe or wasn't in the Bible. And so, so the contemporary list may be a little different, right? It may look a little bit different. It may show up differently than somebody who says, hey, you've got to sacrifice a dove and believe in Jesus. We may not see that as a contemporary thing, but the fact remains that there are arguments and dissensions and quarrels about whatever the hobby horse topic is of the day. And you think, well, if you vote for such and such person, then you can't be a Christian. What? Where did that come from? Now, I will grant you, there are wise people to vote for and people that are not so wise to vote for. God has used and given us through his word and through our, the Holy Spirit the ability to use wisdom in making those decisions, right? But I don't care if you're a donkey or an elephant or a hippopotamus or a giraffe. It doesn't matter. They're all sinful and fallen. There may be other pet things that, that you may say, well, if you're going to be a Christian, then you've got to do X, Y, and Z. And Paul's saying, don't fall into it, Titus. Don't let them add to it. The gospel is the gospel is the gospel. Insist on it. Avoid the others. And then he says they're exactly the opposite of what he finishes verse 8 with about the good works that are born out of an understanding and, and obedience to the gospel. Those things, he says, are excellent and profitable. These things, unprofitable and worthless. Not worth a little bit. They're useless and worthless, and don't waste your time on it. You've got plenty of work to do getting all these churches in Crete set up, finding elders to appoint at each place, making sure things are running smoothly. Don't worry about this other mess. The Lord will sort all that out. You insist on the things that you know you need to insist on. Let the Lord handle the rest of it. These things are unprofitable and worthless. Moving on. Verses 10 and 11, and then we'll be done. As for a person, so he's changing now from, from thoughts and ideas and, and things that are being taught to the actual people. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such, such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So Paul's turning now from the false teaching to the false teacher and is explaining to Titus how to approach them, how to handle them, how to deal with them, what to do if they arise. Now, uh, again, I'm reading ESV. You may be reading ESV. My translation says, as for a person who stirs up division. Now, that's a long way to say what in Greek is two words. It's an adjective and a noun. So if you have a different translation, if you're reading New King James, NIV, or Christian Standard, it will say a divisive person. If you're reading New American Standard or Revised Standard Version, it will say a factious person, which I had to look that word up. I don't ever say that. A factious person is somebody who creates factions or divisions, right? So that's what it would say. If you're reading King James, he just flat calls him a heretic, which I see how they got there. Because the word in Greek is the word that eventually we get our word heretic or heresy from. But in the first century, when we hear heresy or heretic, we think of a false teaching that is opposite of what Orthodox Christianity teaches. And that's, that's the definition. That's how that word has evolved into our use. And, and by like the second or third century, that's how everybody understood it. But here... This adjective, it's really interesting. This is the only place in the New Testament that it's found. We get the word heretic from it, but it actually means, if you look literally at the word, it means self-chosen 
And that's not a big stretch, right? You can understand how you get from heresy or how you get from a a self-chosen teaching to a heresy. So think of it this way. There is an, an orthodox teaching that has been handed down from Christ through the apostles throughout church history that has been universally agreed upon, right? And then somebody says, no, no, I've been looking and I I have come up with, I've seen something new. Nobody in 2,000 years of church history has ever seen what I've seen. I just found it and I'm going to tell you about it. And it is, left field is not even the right word for it. It is from another planet, right? It comes from who knows where. Well, we know where, but it, 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 but it is something that in the face of evidence and in the face of right teaching and doctrine, they choose, I'm choosing for myself what I'm going to teach. What I have come up with, I choose over and above what God's word says. This is the last place I'm going to flip, and then I promise we're going to get close to being done. I'm not going to promise anything else. So Jude, verses 3 to 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I find it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That letter in Jude, I really wanted to write to you, and I really wanted to encourage you about salvation But I have to write to you about the faith because there's false teachers everywhere. That's what Paul is telling Titus here. Contend for the faith. Insist on sound doctrine. For the person who stirs up division, creates factions, warn them once, warn them twice, and have nothing to do with them. It sounds very similar to Matthew 18 and church discipline, right? The goal here, it seems, as in Matthew 18, is reconciliation. It's repentance. It's going to, in Matthew 18, it is clear when the process starts, the person who is in open and unrepentant sin is assumed to be a believer. And those who see them and recognize this go to them privately. And then if that doesn't work, semi-privately, one or two others, before getting to the last step, which is when you bring it before the church. And then they're excluded from Christian fellowship. Because, because of their actions and their unwillingness to repent in the face of clear doctrine, clear teaching, clear words from Scripture, they've shown themselves to be an unbeliever. And that's what Paul is telling Titus right here. The hope is that the offender will listen to the rebuke and repent. But if not, the command is to re- remove them from fellowship and consider them an unbeliever, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Again, Titus, you got plenty to do. Talking to crazy people who won't listen and won't repent and are trying to lead others astray by teaching a gospel contrary to what you know to be true is not the best way to spend your time. Remember what Paul says, if we or an angel from heaven show up teaching something different, Don't listen to them. Let them be cursed. That's what he's saying. They are choosing, as you read the end of that verse, knowing or verse 11, knowing that such a person is warped or perverted and sinful, he is self-condemned. So that self-chosen, that self-chosen teaching over and above right Christian doctrine, that being taken above the correction that, Faithful brothers and sisters come to the the false teacher with their refusal to repent in that case is the very last phrase. He is self-condemned. That refusal shows that they are self-condemned, literally condemned by their own actions. The things that they do show that they are not a child of God. Paul's telling Titus, don't do it. We want them to repent. Warn them once. Go back again. If they're not listening, they're not among you. They're not of you. Let them go. Have nothing more to do with it. So what do we do? 
What do we do with this passage? We've read several things, and it's both ends, right? It's, it's, it's profitable, it's unprofitable. He's giving examples of both. So what do we do with this? Well, we do the same thing that Paul told Titus to do. We insist on the gospel. We devote ourselves to good works. We make it our business to do good works. Paul is instructing Titus here that that is the basis for a faithful ministry. That is the basis for a faithful church. That is the basis for a faithful Christian life. Insist on the gospel. Devote ourselves to good works and let the Lord sort out the rest of it. Finished work of Christ is where we find salvation and how we rest in his assurance. Now, some of you may be familiar with a, a pastor named Alistair Begg. If you're not, you may have heard your pastor reference him. Now, Alistair Begg is a pastor in Cleveland, Ohio, but he is originally from Scotland, so he is infinitely more interesting to listen to than me because he's got a Scottish accent. But on top of being an amazing preacher, he's got a saying that I have heard him say dozens and dozens of times. And he, he, will, he will work it in to sermons, and it always is fitting. And this is what he says. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And what does he mean by that? He means that the big things for salvation, God is holy, we are a sinner, Christ is perfect, he died for sin, he raised from the dead and offers eternal life. Those big things in Scripture are plainly read. They're clear. They're undisputable. The main things are the plain things, and the things that are plain are the things that God really wants to make sure we get it. Now, there are important things about that we come across in Scripture that are worth debating, right? There are important things that we talk about and that are not going to be set up in terms of being divisive or being someone who stirs up division. There are things that you, you don't get this many people together without there being some theological differences, right? But it better not be on the main things. Can't be on the main things. If you want to argue about if we sing two songs or three songs before the preacher gets up, have at it. If that becomes a point of division, then that's a problem. But there are important things that are worth debating and discussing, right? That's how we get denominations. Unless your pastor has turned into a Presbyterian in the last two days, he's not going to show up with Eva and baptize her, right? Because this church teaches believers' baptism. Those are things we would call Presbyterians, brothers and sisters in Christ, but that's an important doctrine that we disagree on. We understand baptism happens after you Repent and make a credible profession of faith. So he's not going to show up with Eva and be sprinkling her. I don't think. I don't think he has. If he does, Michael, call me if he does that. Okay? So, um, so that, that's what we do. We, we, we have got to keep the main things and the plain things, the main things and the plain things. We've got to understand, we've got to insist on these things. We've got to insist on the gospel and recognize that our salvation and how we rest is in the assurance of the finished work of Christ. So you may be here today and be an unbeliever and think none of this makes sense. Well, it's not supposed to. But if there is a stirring and a wonder in, in, in your mind and in your heart and you think, I don't quite get it, but I want to know more. There are pastors here. There are maybe people you are, are here as a, uh, uh, that came, you came as a visitor with them. Ask them. Ask them to explain to you, what are you to insist on? Run to Christ. Repent and believe today. The things we read, I promise you, everything that we read today is absolutely true. Christ has satisfied the judgment of God and has made a way for us to avoid it. And it's a sweet story and a story we need to insist on. Maybe you are a Christian but have tried to rest and find assurance in things you do and not have those good works be in the proper place of commending the gospel that you preach and as an outflowing of a life of obedience based on an understanding of grace. 
Rest in the cross. He's done it all. It's done. It's complete. He's told us what to do, how to do it, but he's done all the work. He will sustain us through our walk through sanctification for the rest of our lives. We can trust in him for that. Pray with me, please. Father in heaven, again, we are thankful to you for your word, for the clarity of it, for the insistence that Paul tells Titus and by extension us 2,000 years later that we are to insist on the gospel, that we are to rest in the gospel, that we are to understand our salvation is made possible because of what Christ has done. Completed. It is finished. He has done it. There's nothing more. The only thing that we bring to the table when we are saved is the sin that makes it necessary. Lord, for those here who do not know you, don't give them a moment's rest until they get it settled. Lord, work in their brain and in their heart. Work through those who love them and have invited them and the pastors here and the members here. Work through me, Lord, to explain, to walk through with an open Bible what Christ has done and how that matters and what that means. Lord, we pray now that you would soften our hearts and our minds to the truth of your gospel that you would bend our will to align with Scripture rather than us trying to bend Scripture to align with what we want to do. Lord, having read these things, having heard these things, having prayed these things, having sung these things all morning, Lord, we ask that we would look more like your Son. That's our prayer. That's our hope. Lord, we will thank you for what you're going to do. Father, again, for those who are here, the families represented, and for your sweet, sweet word that we've been able to spend some time in this morning, we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.